Welcome to the podcast, a collaboration between me, Sam Miller, and Nicola Crawley, who works for the Mental Health in Reach the Schools project. It'll be me with you today, and I'll be talking staff well-being and having a conversation with Kerry Jones, who manages the Torvine Young People's Counselling Service, which provides the school-based counselling service in Torvine. And we're going to be discussing staff well-being. Before I start my conversation with Kerry, just a couple of points really in signposts that we are going to be talking about staff well-being. If you do feel that you could do with support with your own well-being at the moment, we will link to the MIND website and the Education Support Partnership who provides support to all school staff, not just teaching staff. And also to provide some context, this podcast was recorded after Kirsty Williams's announcement around schools opening more widely on the 29th of June, but before the guidance was published. So uh, as I'm editing this, the guidance has now been published. Interestingly, in the operational guidance for schools, there's the following paragraph in regards to staff well-being. So it says, and I quote, COVID-19 makes it more important than ever that we acknowledge the need to provide a reflective space staff to deal with and process the often stressful, uncomfortable and sometimes painful experiences of working with children, young people, their families and systems around them. When it is not possible to employ a counsellor for this specific purpose, leaders in good schools provide opportunities for staff to discuss issues with them or their colleagues. Sharing experiences and discussing their feelings and emotions can identify areas where additional support is needed and is a valuable exercise in itself for helping people support their own well-being. Local authorities should work with schools and settings to provide support to staff. End quote. So it really highlights the need for the conversation around staff well-being and that links in really well with the conversation that Kerry and I had recently. Now I'm into conversation with Kerry Jones about staff well-being. Welcome to the podcast, Kerry. Hi, Sam. Hi there. Kerry, just to get us uh, started for those of anybody listening who isn't familiar with the service or yourself, can you just give us a little bit of background, tell us a little bit about the service? Yeah, sure. So we are Torvine Young People's Counselling Service. Um, we've been running for about 12 years, I think. Um, we're in all the secondary schools in Torvine and we also cover all the primary schools and really the service is a service for young people so if they're struggling or they're not okay they can either directly come to us or ask a member of staff and then uh, come and speak to a counsellor. And so predominantly you're school-based but there's also an element of the CCYP is that right? Yeah, so my office is at the Combran Centre for Young People and we have three counsellors there doing out-of-schools appointments. So that's for young people who just, for whatever reason, don't want to be seen in school or maybe they're not attending school. Okay, and I know that sometimes uh, young people in school often prefer to to access a service through CCYP, don't they? So that's that's good that they've got double option there. So today I really want to talk about staff well-being. Uh, we're recording this uh, a couple of days ago. Kirsty Williams, the Education Secretary for Wales, made the announcement that the plan is for schools to uh, open more widely on the 29th of June. And we don't have any further guidance, the more detailed guidance we're still waiting on. But we do know the intention is the 29th of June 
as a sort of marker date to go back, which just brings into focus staff well-being really during this period. Um, so I want to discuss that with you and get some of your insights really around staff well-being, um, how it may have been impacted during this period and what we can do as we look ahead to that planned transition back into school. So why just start us off when, when we're talking about well-being, staff well-being, we're talking about self-care. Why is self-care so important, Kerry, from your therapeutic point of view? Well, from a counsellor's point of view, it's essential. Um, you know, we can't look after young people if we're not okay. We can't respond to the distress and upset in others if we're out of balance ourselves. So uh, for me, self-care has to come first, really, and other things come after that. Um, so we have monthly supervision, for example, and, and a strong element of supervision for me is around how well a counsellor is in themselves. Um yeah, it's it's that old thing about, you know, on the aeroplane when you've got children, if there's a an oxygen crisis, you have to put your own mask on first before you can help your child. Uh, we, know, we know good to anyone if we've passed out. So, yeah, um, you know, teachers work in very challenging environments. They're very busy. Um, and looking after themselves, I think, is key, especially right now. Yeah, so... That's a really, really good summary there of, of self-care. And the, the most common one, as you talk about, is the, the mask analogy, which does, just really works really, really well, doesn't it? So just thinking about particularly right now and, and self-care, as you mentioned there, in this period, you know, what impact may have lockdown and this period have had on, on self-care and well-being generally? Yeah, well, I mean... We were all thrown out of our routine very suddenly, weren't we? Like a massive jolt in our lives um, where normal life just suddenly stopped and we were thrown back into our homes. And, well, I mean, I'm very aware there are key workers that have still been going out and doing their thing. Um, and I think in the beginning, perhaps, that, that change and that newness was almost a little bit exciting. Like, OK, how, how do we respond to this? How do we cope? Um, but as time goes on and the news reports, you know, the amount of deaths that we've seen on the news, it, I think there has been like a collective sinking or a collective grief, maybe. Yeah, I think that's definitely a societal trauma, isn't it? I feel it's you know, nobody has escaped. You know, I was talking to somebody recently who's a key worker who's still been working throughout the time who said they've the lockdown hasn't seemed you know, as impactful to them because largely they, they haven't been affected they've still been going out every day but obviously the the nature of their work means that the impact is still there in a very real way just in terms of the trauma they're experiencing in their work life so you know it's really impacted everybody uh, interestingly you mentioned that initial excitement which is interesting because i think that was real really uh, to start off with it was a real shock but you started to think okay what how could we rise the challenge and how how can we keep delivering the services that we deliver and then as time's gone on i know there's lots of different elements to it but i certainly have felt that the working from home for those of us who 
are school-based and work in a very live environment, which is often very busy and lots of people around. Working from home has really been quite challenging and getting used to that, especially when you know myself have childcare, for example. The home work life balance becomes you just can't separate the two, and that difficulty in separation and you're never really away from either of them is just a very strange, different way of being. Exactly. It's very strange, very new. And at the moment kind of feels a bit unending. I think that that feeling of not knowing when it's going to change or return. So I think within that weird mixture of work and home, um, you know, you were asking about self-care. We have to try and find ways of, um, well, definitely disconnecting from work when we're at home. Um, and also just kind of remembering ourselves within all of that. I think for me, definitely in the middle of lockdown, there was a little bit of a loss of identity going on. It's like, well, if I don't go out to work and I don't come home from work and I don't, you know, who am I at the moment? Just sort of working in in my room on my laptop. Very strange feeling. Absolutely. And that was interesting because that's, halfway through lockdown a few weeks ago now uh, I did a school assembly virtually uh, and I wanted it to kind of be as normal for the young people as possible and in seeing me when they hadn't seen me for a while so I put a shirt and tie on to do the virtual assembly and it was just the most bizarre feeling um, almost comfort in putting my costume on and like I say that self-identity suddenly you know is so wrapped up in that costume of getting dressed and going to to work it was a really strange feeling and, and similarly finishing the assembly and taking the shirt and tie off was equally you know really strange feeling so I think that self-identity or, or loss of identity is again something real and it's something that equally you know, we've had to get used to that but the anxiety around the uncertainty at the moment of what and when and what that look like, also preparing to reassume that identity when we've kind of got used to not having that identity. And, and you, you know, you're talking about reassuming that identity, but that identity will have changed <clears throat> because when we do go back into schools, it's going to be a different structure, which we don't know about yet. So even that, it's not a returning to the known, is it? It's returning to a... A situation that is still taking shape so this yeah, constant yeah. feeling of questioning and what you know what's going to happen what's this going to be like um that can be very unsettling over time i think there's a really interesting discussion on on twitter beginning of this week end of last week about ties and whether this period has seen the end of the tie as a piece of formal attire and really heated conversation about that and just I hadn't considered it I hadn't thought about it but then obviously thinking about it and having to wear clean clothes every day and the tie just in where it is just being a sort of catch-all for the virus um, was just again having not thought about it was wow you know the thought of going to work and not wearing a tie when for men the dress code is that you have a tie most people, you know, in a CHP or technology or something like that. Just the thought of that was a sort of strange thought of getting used to that different, which is really, it's the really small things. I think 
at the moment it's just those small things that suddenly hit home and make you think really about what it's going to be like and like you say the anxiety around not knowing and all those unanswered questions at the moment. It is interesting that the Thai you know had such heated discussions but I think lockdown um, has intensified issues. I think life has been stripped bare hasn't it over the last couple of months and we've had to focus on what's important because we can't go out and meet people or socialize or travel so we're kind of forced back onto ourselves all the time and I think from that point of view there's kind of no escape from certain things and I think that's something that people may have struggled with in this time that the things that aren't okay are not really they're kind of bigger uh, and inescapable absolutely and that's that's definitely uh, that feeling that that sense as you say that everything is intensified and we're seeing that in lots of different ways but like you say just in your own life all the things that normally maybe you're not around so much because you're in work or things just all become like you say more sensitive or you're more aware of them because you're around them more often or and things like that so it's really difficult so you know we all these reasons, excellent reasons why self-care is so important always and now more than ever. What does self-care look like? Well, for me, I would sort of interpret self-care as how do I connect to myself? How do I stay in connection with, with Kerry, with being me and being balanced uh, rather than being sort of pulled away from myself or overwhelmed? So how we remain connected to ourselves is really individual, I think. You know, some people are very physical. Uh, they need a lot of um, exercise and fresh air and outdoor type stuff. So it's if you are somebody that's quite physical, that definitely needs to be a daily part of your life, uh, whether it's a run, a walk or whatever exercise. And that could be, you know, something that people need to do on their own as well to have some time to themselves. Um and I think there's different levels of, of physical response. So there's kind of tiredness that's physical, which, you know, we might all need a good night's sleep. I know a lot of people's sleep has been disrupted during this time um, or, you know, a really nice hot bath. Um, but then there's another type of tiredness, I think, which is about being mentally exhausted. Um, and those of us that are working at home are constantly being messaged, emailed, you know, it just it sort of never ends. So from that point of view, then a kind of mental break or peace, uh, a time of, of peace needs to happen every day. Um, and I think self-care, if it's not something you're used to doing or thinking about, it's just a case of sort of introducing it every day into your life. Um, so for me personally, if I start to hear that my voice is getting stressy, if I'm talking to my son, I'm getting snappy or if I can start to feel getting over, I'm getting overwhelmed about something really basic, I know that I need a break, I need a bit of peace, I need some time to myself, and I need to just sort of reconnect. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's some interesting. Of, yeah, oh, I was just going to say, and, and I think some people who are quite introverted, they need time to themselves, definitely. Um Whereas the more extroverted people, they will recharge by connecting with others. Um, and so for the extroverts, especially the young people that are very sociable and like to be out, 
you know, that, that's not been available for them at this time. So I really feel for those guys. What you're saying there about self-care being really personal and different for everybody, I think is absolutely spot on. Um, I think one of the things with I find with self-care is that I think most people can quite easily come up with a list of, of things they enjoy doing and wish they could do more often. And for some that might be walking the dog more often or reading a book, having a bath, going socializing, having coffee with a friend or whatever it might be. But most people can generally identify that list quite easily. It's that committing to do it, I think, is the the big step. Um, I think that's that sense of taking the time and the commitment to self-care. We're not that good at Um whether we think it's selfish or you know work work and home life is busy so it's hard to find the time but I think it's often that commitment to actually doing those things that is the hardest part of all yeah yeah and I think it's also about you know like I was just saying then I notice I'm not okay when I start to get stressy um, which wouldn't be my normal response to things so I think we need to keep an eye on this question you know how do I know if I'm not okay how, how do I recognize if I need to increase self-care in my life um, and again that's going to be different for different people some people might withdraw when they're not okay other people might um, get overwhelmed other people might forget stuff or be disorganized so we need to sort of know know ourselves really um and sort of pay attention to when we are when we're not all right. Yeah, really interesting point there, particularly about the triggers. So I think that's the thing is when we know we notice, and me personally, I'll withdraw. Um, that's definitely my trigger is I'll I'll notice that I'm withdrawing, or people very close to me will point out to me that I'm withdrawing. Uh, so I know that that's you know signs and triggers there that. I'm not coping so well and then I'll sort of know the things that I need to do to sort of help or or get me through but I'm the typical person who needs to commit to that longer term so that I don't get to the point of withdrawing which I'm quite self-aware about these days and sort of checking with myself quite a lot but still there's work to be done but I think everybody in this period you know it's knowing what those triggers are I think again that most people will probably be able to know their triggers or what it looks like when they're starting to struggle but it's committing to those elements of self-care and I'm thinking the more I think about going back to school or you know in a more in a different capacity you know people have been working the hubs and, and lots of people have been in work quite a lot but it'll be quite different potentially when we get the guidance this again back to that unknown but now I think is a critical time to invest in ourselves, to kind of get ourselves in the best possible place, ready for the next part of the the journey back into the expansion of schools, cohorts, and back to that different way of working that we're not entirely sure what it's going to look like. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, thinking about what you said about, you know, commitment to self-care, um you know, I think sometimes we need to look at the reasons why we undermine ourselves or why we 
we we don't do the things that make us feel better you know what what kind of messages are we saying in our own minds if you like you know that, oh don't you don't don't be silly you're all right or, or there's some kind of shadow around it being a bit weak if you need a moment to yourself and I think it's time to sort of let these messages go now this idea that if you put yourself first or you you need to be selfish sometimes that that's somehow bad because actually it's not it's really healthy um and i think we have to be aware of the culture around some workplaces which are you know it's very normal for people to have to present being okay all the time and again how helpful is that really you know i'm not suggesting everyone should be breaking down all the time or you know not at all but at the end of the day if someone's not all right um they might need to step out for a minute and and regroup and i think that's particularly pertinent to education because you know when you're in a school and you're teaching lessons you know you are have to be that person for an hour with lots of people in front of you with lots of content and learning to deliver, make sure everybody makes progress, make sure that behavior is managed effectively, make sure that everything in the lesson happens as it should. So you have to be that different persona all the time. So it's just really interesting insight from your perspective there. And I think that's definitely something that the education sector can really take on board just because of the nature of the work, you know, it's uh, you have to be a certain way for large parts of the day. Which is where supervision comes in, really. And you'll know this is, again, something I'm very passionate about because I think it is such a fundamental part. You know, you mentioned at the beginning, in your in the therapeutic world, it's a fundamental aspect, you know, with your registration, your professional registration has like, sort of written into it. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, you know, for counsellors and therapists, supervision is mandatory um which makes it sound really heavy or negative or something as if you know somebody's checking up on us or making sure we're doing it right um i mean you know there could be elements of that i suppose with a trainee counselor but supervision is for me is just this wonderful space um where i can reflect on how my work impacts on me as a person which is very different to the education world where we largely you know lots of people may not have heard of it so before we get too too deep into it can you just summarize what supervision when we say supervision what is it we're actually talking about um well i think you know different people would define it differently um and loads of books have been written about it but you know to simplify for counselors it's about taking um issues from our work with clients to a supervisor to make sure that we are um, working in an ethical, healthy, positive way with that person. Um, and if there's any areas that we're stuck on or um, feeling like we're not doing so well, the supervisor is there to help us reflect on that and find different approaches. Um, a large part of my supervision personally, because my um, you know, I'm, I'm a quite an experienced practitioner and don't need so much help with casework. For me, it's an opportunity to explore where I'm at in my work. So <clears throat> where I need to develop, uh, where I could, um, things that are going well that I can build on, 
how to sustain that. Um, but also, I think the biggest gift of supervision is it can offer a different perspective. It can be an opportunity to reframe a situation or a problem in a way that when I come out of supervision, I feel confident and positive about how I'm going to approach something. Whereas I might have arrived at supervision thinking, oh, hell, you know, how am I going to do this? Or this is getting me down or I'm, I don't feel like I'm doing this very well. Um, but with time to explore it and kind of look at it from different angles and see what's going on for the different people involved, um, it can be really, really inspiring. And, and yeah, just really give you a boost, actually. Yes, that's a really good summary. And I think personally, again, I'm a pastoral middle leader. So, you know, lots of my work is supporting young people. Uh, and oftentimes that's supporting them through some difficulties. So I'd experienced a heightened level of compassion fatigue, which is sort of um, that glass being full and not being able to take any more and always struggling with that feeling of being just just about getting by with emotions quite close to the surface all the time just just with the nature of the work and trying to support people and getting to that point of feeling that maybe I wasn't able to respond as well as I could in certain situations because of that compassion fatigue um, which is why I was looking for supervision and I think that, that really helped to like you say have that conversation talk situations through and when you're stuck on something or you're not, not quite sure what to do in a situation being able to discuss it in that safe environment and like you say a lot of the time it's just affirming it's talking something through and having somebody else say actually that sounds like you know you're doing a really good job in a difficult situation or maybe have you thought about looking at it from this perspective and then being able to see it in new ways, which is really helpful. Uh, very often I find it's helpful to be able to have somebody offer a new perspective on something that you just can't see. Sometimes that's that feeling of not being able to see the wood for the trees, so to speak. And that's... Yeah, and that, that feeling of not being able to see the wood for the trees and, and you, you use the term compassion fatigue. I think we literally get saturated with what we're exposed to and you know, teachers like yourself, you're very busy. You don't have opportunities in the day to sort of regroup and, and let and sort of put down some of the stuff that you've um, seen in the young people around you. So you're literally carrying it around with you. Um, and then another young person comes along and, yeah, where does that go? Yeah, like I say, it's that glass full overflowing already you can't pour any more into that glass so supervision just allows you to kind of empty some of that glass out so that you've got a little bit more room for new things if that makes sense yeah yeah absolutely and i think nicola crawley and i were talking about this previously about what young people the impact this period may have had on young people and going back to school may we may expect to see more uh mental health issues and nicola Crawley and i again were very clear on the first episode that when we talk about mental health we're not talking about mental illness 
I'm not pathologizing. We're talking about mental health as in feeling sad and angry when it's appropriate to feel sad and angry. But we may come across more of these feelings in this period. Uh, and the research isn't entirely there yet because it's obviously a live situation. But some of the research from Young Minds and other research already coming out from China's experience is certainly supporting that there will have been an impact on everybody's mental health. And so we may anticipate that we're going to have to have that little bit of more space in our glasses, so to speak, and that availability when we go back, which is why this is an important time now to reflect and start maybe thinking about practices going forwards. You know, people don't have supervision now. And certainly... Supervision can be helpful for anybody in the school, support staff, teaching staff, admin staff, you know, all will take on support roles for young people in different forms at different times. It's how schools work, you know, and any member of staff can find that they're supporting a particular young person in a particular way for a particular reason. Uh, It's not refined to middle leadership or anything like that, but certainly if you're in a role where you are supporting young people a lot, um, I think that's supervision is something to really carefully consider going forwards and work into your practice because it's like you're saying in other fields it's mandatory um, and hopefully one day in education we may get to a position where it's the same but certainly that's not going to be in the short term but it's certainly something for people to be thinking about and if somebody was listening and thinking well, supervision actually that sounds like something that would be really beneficial to me how could they go about accessing that? Um, best to contact me um, or contact, um, find out who the link in their school is that deals with the counselling service. Um, do you want me to give contact details here? We can link, we'll link up um, some information alongside the podcast so people will be able to get that but like you say you know even if it's not directly then speaking to line management or the people who manage the school-based counseling service so you, you can have a contact that way as well yeah and um you know another possibility is um if members of staff are unsure about supervision they can just have a chat with me about it if they've got questions or concerns they're not really sure um, they can just ring, you know, get in touch. We can have a conversation about it. Um, the other thing is, uh, staff are welcome to form uh, small groups. It can be really supportive, actually, being part of a, a supervision group, because you hear from your colleagues as well about how they're doing. And quite often, people are feeling, in, you know, they have shared feelings about what's going on, and that can be very supportive. Um, so yeah, there are different options. The peer supervision, we call that when we. Yeah. Well, I could, you know, a supervisor could be there to help facilitate, or it could be peer. I can say that the aspect of having your peers and their experiences, shared experiences, can be really powerful as well. Oh, I love group supervision with counsellors. I absolutely love it. Um, we're all very different. We all have very different approaches. Um, and it's great to hear about how people think about their work. And when I say their work, that's relationships with young people. Um, so what approaches, how young people respond to things, what helps, what doesn't help. 
um, I love it. I really love hearing about about what my colleagues are doing. And I'm always learning from them as well, which is great. And that's, is that in addition to your normal work or does that form a part of, you know, during your work hours, for example? Um, so organizing group soup, as I call it, can be a bit challenging um, because my team work for different services on different days. So um, we try and integrate it into the working day if possible because we're more likely to get everybody there. So it's about just ske scheduling issues, probably the biggest block to group supervision. Uh, but if you it's can pull it off, yeah, 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 it's worth it, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, again, I strongly recommend that people consider that, especially um, whether it's individual or peer supervision. It's really helpful when working with young people, uh, like you say, just trying to keep everybody's well-being at the forefront, really. And it all comes back to that oxygen mask analogy of just keeping ourselves as well as we can so that we're best placed to support the young people that are the fundamentals of our job. That's really interesting. Just in thinking of just to bring the podcast together, always at the podcast, end of the podcast, we try to have some teacher takeaways and some tips or advice uh, in terms of practice that any listener can take away and actively do. So you know, I'm going to run through a couple of ideas, by all means, interrupt, add, on, um, contradict. But my ones from this podcast, I'm, I think, are number one, to acknowledge and just sit with the fact that self-care isn't selfish or self-indulgent. Number two, make time for self-care and prioritize doing some of the things for yourself that you know you enjoy. And number three, keep that self-awareness and regular check-ins, keep an eye out for those triggers. Think about what your triggers are, identify them as early as you can if they do start to appear so you can try and put some more self-care strategies in place. Anything you think to add to that? Um, and I think it's okay to not know really what's going on at the moment. I think, um, you know, uh, the, the uncertainty that we talked about at the beginning, I think if everyone that might be going back to work in a couple of weeks just reflects on how comfortable they are with this whole world now there's a virus out there and what they can do to feel like they've got some autonomy and some choice in that you know what do they need to feel safe at work and comfortable at work what do they need to feel ready to to sort of find out what this new professional identity is now that we're in a kind of in-between stage and um and for people to be gentle with themselves around all of this, because we haven't figured it out yet, have we? You know. No, I think that's fair to say. We're learning we're as we go, you know. Absolutely. And we're eagerly today anticipating some further guidance from Welsh Government as well, which will try and flesh out some of those sort of unknowns. Uh, but I'm sure, no doubt, will also lead to some further known unknowns as well. So... I think that's absolutely right in what you're saying there. It's just taking that time to reflect and see where we all are. So some really useful information there. Thanks for your time, Kerry, talking about 
well-being and staff well-being in particular i think there's some really interesting points for there for people to consider so i appreciate your time uh, and hopefully we'll have you on again on another podcast very soon so thank you for listening thank you again kerry for giving your time to talk to us about staff well-being we hope you find that useful links to useful websites as mentioned at the beginning will be in the episode information Uh, we hope you join us again soon for another episode of the podcast